1: Hello and welcome to the AEW Rampage review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by one of the Dudley Boys, Michael Sidgwick from What Culture to look back on Friday's episode of AEW Rampage. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts where we not only review AEW Rampage but also AEW Dynamite, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, Dubai... Oh, Pay-per-views, premium live events. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a brilliant good quiz, of course, on wrestle culture. As I said, they're joined by Michael Sidgwick uh, to discuss AEW Rampage, a show that felt like a two-hour dynamite crammed into one hour of Rampage.
2: It was incredibly rushed. It was another seven out of ten Rampage, the likes of which, if you told me three, four, five years ago, this is what you're going to get. You'd be doing cartwheels, but at the same time... It can feel a little bit. Oh, that's good. Maybe I'm not being. What's the word I'm looking for here, Wilborn? Appreciative enough.
1: Yeah, we've been spoiled. I think it's fair yeah, to say I mean, since AW's spoiling. arrival.
2: And I don't think this episode was remotely helped by absolute banger klaxons blaring across social media and like the aggregate sites and the comment sections and uh, squared circle <laughs> talking <laughs> about how this Ishii versus Cole match was quote unquote tremendous banger. Adam Cole's best AEW outing yet. We'll get into it imminently, but I did not sort of feel that hype through my television screen whatsoever, if I'm being perfectly blunt. Look, it was good to very good.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it was enjoyable. Like you say, it's one of those, it's a bit like we talk about sometimes when we're previewing it, and you fantasy book something, and I go, well, if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to be happy. (laughs) If I'd just gone in and watched it, I would have appreciated it a little little bit more. I think you're right. I think maybe the hype... uh, almost took away from elements of this show, and yet there were still so many good things that we are going to talk about. Let's start at the beginning, though. Uh, as you mentioned, Adam Cole versus Tomohiro Ishii, uh, qualifier for the Owen Hart tournament, and uh, I loved it from a moment one where Cole takes control, drives Ishii into the corner, st- sticks in some kicks, and thinks, "Right, that's that's uh, Tomohiro Ishii taken care of. I think it's time to uh, do my pose. Big mistake. Huge. Uh, he just turns around. Ishii stood behind him the whole time with that unique facial expression of his, let's just say. Just no Fs given. Turns around, chops him viciously. They go out to the floor. Uh, Cole ducks a close on Ishii, uh, hits, it, hits it with his arm instead. So then Cole takes control and chucks him around ringside into the barricade and then throws him back into the ring. Ground and pound. Uh, puts him in a chin lock. Hangman's neck breaker. And then he just starts thinking... I'd tell you what's a really good idea now. Let's just slap the stone pit bull. Let's just slap him. And, uh, yeah, he didn't take too kindly to that one either. He just no-sold it, including the forearms that came after that, and drops him with a wonderful sort of forearm that staggers Cole, and he falls backwards. Then he catches him with a uh, spinning power slam, Backdrop suplex gets a near fall, uh, but Cole hits an Ushiguroshi to take us to a break. When we come back, uh, Ishii hits a delayed superplex for a nice two count. Cole dodges that sliding lariat of his, though. Hits a super kick. Goes to lower the boom, but Ishii ducks it and hits his sliding lariat for a near fall. Goes for a brain buster, Ishii does, but Cole counters it with that kneecap brain buster of his. He goes for the Panama Sunrise. Uh, Ishii avoids it and manages to hit an Inzaguri, uh, and as both guys are down, they climb to their feet, Ishii, Ishii gets back up, headbutt, super kick from Cole, and then he just takes Cole's head off with a lariat. but in the midst of all this, uh, I should have mentioned Rocky Romero was ringside uh, alongside Orange Cassidy um, to support Ishii. And uh, in the midst of all this, Jay White runs down, hoys Rocky Romero into the stairs. That distracts Ishii. It also distracts the referee. That allows Cole to hit Ishii with a low blow. Lower the boom. One, two, three.
2: I would describe this as good, not great. Elements of it were very good. But when you're expecting a classic because of the noise emanating from the tapings, you're expecting something else. Um, and this is terrible analysis, but when a crack in professional wrestling match is unfolding in front of you, you just get... Adrenalized. You just get pumped up, you get hyped up, fired up, all the rest of it. And you just feel, watching it, this is absolutely great, this is. And I've really got that feeling once watching this. Despite it was fun. It was fun. There were some really nice bits, one of which I'll really put over imminently. But that feeling of, oh, this is awesome, I'm lost in it, never wanted to end. I'm glad I did it at that point because the finish was great, etc. It's never once got that elusive feeling of, I'm watching a
1: banger and this is great. It's never really got it. I did, uh, yeah, I'm not normally the person who does this because I'm like, well, I like what you like and if you're enjoying it, especially if you're in attendance, I get it. But I think there was a this is awesome chant in the midst of this. And at that point, I think I folded my arms and I went, not sure if we're quite there yet. It, was, it wasn't it was quite the level of pamphlet during AJ Styles versus Edge at WrestleMania where he was like, what are you watching if you think this is awesome? But I just thought, yeah, it hadn't, I hadn't reached the levels and I don't know why, like we said, I don't know whether that was because I went in going, well, this is going to be, you know, one of the best matches we've seen on Rampage this
2: year. To be fair to the match, right, I'm trying to determine whether the the level of hype was failed to be substantiated when I watched the match itself. I'm trying to think of what I would have thought about this match without people telling me explicitly, this is tremendous, go out your way to watch it, etc., etc., because I don't even think I would have really loved it even then, and it's hard to put my finger on why. There were elements, I kind of thought this was going to be great, when I saw the match graphic before the noise, just because the, the characters complement each other yes. like so well, Ishii is absolutely incredible at defiantly refusing to be bantered off or humiliated or taunted at. And Adam Cole is one of the absolute best, <laughs> despite the fact that a few people, myself included, on super high on this run. honestly, he's amazing at playing the arrogant prick. He was very good at getting his comeuppance. So I thought the, the character dy- dynamic was there. The very best versions of these wrestlers—one who's flat to deceive a little bit, the other ones a bit thrashed—but the very best versions of these wrestlers are still great, perfect opponents. And it wasn't as if like Tamura Ishii, right, is a bit thrashed at this point. And when you are thrashed and you are clever, you are able to, above all else, project your personality and do your match. The greatest hits is a, is a succinct way of saying it. We see it all the time with Minoru Suzuki. Who um, I saw it um, written on Twitter. He's a facial expression delivery system more <laughs> than he is a wrestler yeah, at this yeah. point, but he's so great at this that he can um, do the spaces between moves as good as anyone. So Ishii didn't perform the, I'm in America, I've got a lot of people watching who haven't seen me live or have just watched me in front of clap crowds. I'm going to love watching him just do his match because he got himself up with Ushigaroshi, as you mentioned, really well. This is frantic, high-paced action, fast-paced action, rather. So I, don't, I just couldn't put my finger on why. I just didn't feel an awful lot for this. There was one spot that was great when he... The one um, count kick-out or the absolute refusal in that moment because he's so fired up to feel pain, no selling, but in the best possible yes. way, when he ate the super kick. That was just tremendous. But at the same time, I just never really got the feeling that this was um, a classic or even a great match. And I'll tell you what pissed me off to a point that I got alarmed, right? This entire match was built on the back of the announcement of AWX New Japan Pro Wrestling Forbidden Door. This was a brochure for it. You're going to see matches of this caliber, but longer, better, between respectfully because Ishii is like the best mid-card guy, but he's a mid-card guy. Yeah. He's not a carder, he's not Tanner, he's not Naito. Um, or Shingo, you're expecting a wonderful glimpse of what the Forbidden Door paper per view is going to be. Can't wait to buy it on the evidence of this match. Mm. If anything, this really got me frightened and alarmed about the political problems inherent with doing a cross-promotional yes. pay-per-view. This finish was rotten. I understand why they did this finish. The finish, if you didn't watch this uh, week's Rampage and you are just catching up on this podcast, is that um, Jay White distracted Ishii and oh, like, he distracted like on the outside. This caught the attention of Ishii, who walked into um, a super kick and a finish from Adam Cole. If they are doing the lamest WWE finish, which is so anticlimactic in and of itself, but in terms of the wider picture, if they are on the first explicit tease of the Forbidden Door show doing a lame, politically motivated finish, that has me a little bit worried about the kind of finishes we're going to get at um, Forbidden Door, because in addition to that, I don't know if you've caught up on Moxley versus Osprey. Like, it was so weird and anticlimactic that uh, people weren't sure whether it was, like, a deliberately engineered anti-climax to make it feel like Mox had stolen one it just certainly wasn't definitive whether mm. it was deliberate or otherwise it just took the air out of the balloon and it was such a great match before then the fact that that finish happened because they didn't want to beat Moxley or Osprey the fact that this finish happened because they didn't want to beat Cool or Ishii makes me think who do they want to beat yeah the very best version of the Forbidden Door is the best 5050 book wrestling show of all time you have 10 mm. matches just as an example Five go the way of New Japan, five go the way of AEW, or six go the way of AEW, and four go the way of New Japan, so that when they run it back in Japan, not in front of a clap crowd, they can run it back in New Japan's yes. favour. I'm holding out hope for 50-50 booking at this point, where everything's definitive, but everything's also equal, because on the evidence of this, I'm actually worried about the show, and that is the absolute opposite feeling they sought to engineer through this teaser match.
1: Couldn't agree more. Uh, we go backstage to see uh, the security of AEW not allowing the Jericho Appreciation Society and, well, they'll allow Danny Garcia in because he's got a match, but Daniel Garcia is the only one let through. Jericho, just the whole, I make more money than you make in a lifetime in a day or whatever. What a great line. Gimmick. Uh, and Jericho is uh, going to file a complaint with HR, but Daniel Garcia says, don't worry, I'm a sports entertainer, I've got this. And uh, I think it was Daddy Magic who just goes, Human resources. As they leave, that's it. Brilliant, brilliant stuff, this. Uh, and then we heard from Hook. He is uh, being interviewed backstage. I say being interviewed. We've seen this many, many times before. Someone is speaking at Hook, and he just looks at them. Anyway, he turns a corner to discover Dan Housen with many bags of, as the Americans would say, chips. chips we call them crisps. Uh, just, just all over the floor, and Dan Housen stomping all over them and yeah, trying to wind up hook. Why do they call them chips? I don't know. Do you want to know why they call
2: real chips chips? Why? It's because in I can't remember the name of the novel, but Dickens he referred to them as chipped potatoes because the potatoes have been chipped away to I create get it, yeah. these chip-shaped things. They don't actually have, they have varying shapes. They don't do chips look alike unless you're going to process them like the goddamn Yanks <laughs> and French fries. But um, chipped potatoes,
1: A crisp isn't chipped. A crisp is crisp. Yeah. There's loads I'll, of different processes to call it that. I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up whilst you tell me your thoughts on hook, grabbing Danhausen by the throat, pinning him up against the wall, and finally speaking, saying the words, you wanted my attention, you got it. Well, he's spoken before, which annoys me a little bit. AEW so great with preserving its own history. This
2: is such a minor pedantic thing, and I realise I'm a cock for pointing it out. But for them to say this is the first time Hook's spoken, and that means that he's Danhausen, without cursing him, has still got a, a, enough of a rise out of Hook where he's finally spoken. He's spoken on Dynamite before, just once or twice. But he said something of the fact of, I'm tired of it, man. When something had happened or other to Team Tars, and they were saying I was sick and tired of this affront to Team Tars. Mm. Hook said, I'm tired of this, man. So he has spoken. So it's a little bit annoying how they are pretending something didn't happen when this promotion is the... Remember everything that happened because the things we've done inform and enhance everything we're going to do in the future with lovely continuity, depth of character, immersion, all those beautiful things. But the angle, in and of itself, despite the fact that it was wrong, was really fun. But Hamlet's goddamn ruined it for me because he's suggested that Hook and Danhauser could join forces in some kind of strange unit. Now, Tony Connor's got wonderful previous with putting people together. And people initially thinking, ah, they're in a tag team, or are oh, they going to be in a stable together? And it's always been absolutely awesome. Like, remember, when the pinnacle formed, right? Mm. And literally everyone online, everyone online when discussing the pinnacles. Oh, what's Sean Spears doing there? Like, what's Sean Spears doing there? And then fast forward, like, at this point, um, over a year, and Sean Spears is incredible. Incredible patter, Knows his role wonderfully. He's going to get Powerbomb to Oblivion by Wardlow. And it's going to be one of the biggest pops of the year. And that incorporates all these crazy major debuts. So maybe Hook and Dan Housen, If in fact I'm not just worrying about something that Hamlet invented. Could be good. But my concern is that... Hook's leaning more towards Babyface. And Dan Housen's so over that if he actually kills him... It might ruin what you've got with mm. hook. See I know people have fun with the downhouse and they very nice, very evil <laughs> and even if it's not for me, I don't want to deny people having fun, right? As long as it's not mean spirited or fake fun. My worry is I uh, don't unbabyface hook for for, for downhouse.
1: Yeah. A client in an American hotel in eighteen fifty-three complained that his chips, because they were chips of potato they chipped away at the potato Weren't crispy enough. That's why he needs to call them crisps, dickhead. That's all I could find. <laughs> There's also just a picture there of a condom with the words rubber and an eraser from uh Great Britain. <laughs> you, you got the condoms? You know, you, have you got a rubber? But well, if he said if you said to me, have you got a rubber in a classroom? I wouldn't get a Johnny out for you. I'd give you a little eraser for your pencil.
2: Hey man, you got a latex condom?
1: <laughs> you got a Trojan? You, you wish I'd have freaking trojan. You, uh, yeah. you bloody liar. You, you, you liar. I need you a bloody sock puppy. <laughs> <laughs> He's
2: anyone got a bin bag, my huge <laughs> cat. Anyway, well, what you're, we doing? you're not fooling anyone, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, or, ne- or not doing is the case maybe. <laughs>
1: Next up we got Lance Archer versus Sabentico. And, uh, yeah, it didn't last very long. Uh, Lance, That's more like it. Yeah, Lance Archer, <laughs> Lance Archer made his entrance. And uh, I thought, oh, he hasn't really wrecked anyone on the spot of this entrance. So Brandico did, a, like, a tope and went, yeah, did yeah. it. <laughs> and Lance Archer just stood there I was like, right, time to die. He murdered him. Uh, Chucked him around. I mean, it was like 30 seconds. Chucked him around ringside. Eventually chucked him in the ring. Uh, Suplex. Everybody dies. And then, obviously, in anticipation of the match with Wardlow, I believe, on Dynamite. He did the whole symphony, but it did with a choke slam. And Sean Spears just was loving every second of this on commentary.
2: A masterpiece. This was a masterpiece. It might even be my absolute favorite thing on the entire show. Really? Like, there are reasons why. And I'm going to illuminate them. But uh, everyone knows me. I've got a catchphrase. (laughs) <laughs> I love my intricate, overlapping, Easter egg-laden, mm-hmm. foreshadowing-based storytelling. I love all that. I also love Will Bourne. I'm a man of many tastes, mm-hmm. right? I love a nice three-chord pop song. Just love it. Yeah. What I love, it's just resourceful, catchy. It's finished when it's finished. It doesn't overstay its welcome. doesn't have pretensions and aspirations beyond itself. And what I love about a good bloody hook, a three-chord, three-minute pop, rock song is that... Hang on, there are only so many like chords and keys. How haven't made something amazing mm. with so few resources. I'm always so impressed by it. That leads me onto the Lance Archer Squash. How have they done it in such an entertaining fashion every time? There's an art, and this is when we talk again, or at least I talk, blather on again, about the flaws inherent to the star rating system. I love mm. it. I have this... We all have this weird collective grasp of the star rating system mm. where if a certain match happens, enough people just know when to put the quarters. It's weird, that's four and a quarter there. Everyone's like, yeah, it makes sense that you think it's four and a quarter. I also think it's four and a quarter. How does that work? Yeah. Magnets, how does that work? You know what I mean? It's just something that people intuitively grasp. But it's also flawed because you could go your whole life and go through history, and, like, you don't have time to watch every single All Japan Pro Wrestling show, or every single Jim Crockett show, or, you know, the the, the promotions that have been most acclaimed through the lens of the star rating system, and because it's so great as a shorthand reference tool, it, you can gloss over things, and you can, it's like, it seems like, early 90s squash guys that people don't know about because oh, not, they don't really get star ratings for the matches. You can't go on Profile DB or Cage Match and instantly sort of curate your playlist dipping your toe into yesteryear mm. because this is a five-star squash match. <laughs> or it's a four and three-quarter star squash match. And a squash match should be a genre that is um, spoken of in as much reverence. as a 30 to 40-minute epic. They're so useful. They're so much fun. I l- what I love about this is that it's just there's layers to the comedy, to the cruelty, to the, to the black comedy here. Stupid dickhead Pentacle, who plays the stupid dickhead. Every yeah, role, yeah, yeah. Flies out the ring. Lance Archer grabs him out of thin air, right? And just positions him. Just on a standing position. So not only does Lance Archer swat away the fly, he also allows the fly to celebrate thinking he'd done something <laughs> to him, just as an additional punchline to this joke. That hope he, that kills you. and Yeah, Exactly. And then he kills him. And I love, my God, the subversion of the symphony. Because not only do you get something cool, which is multiple choke slams, um, to the detriment of a, of a stupid, over-e- over-eager dickhead. And I mean that in the nicest possible mm-hmm. way, because he plays his role great. But not only do you get a couple of choke slams, you think, yes, yeah, someone's getting murdered, and that always looks cool. And it's <laughs> Archer's always brilliant. But then he does the withering symphony. And then he tells you, with his decision not to do moves, in the spaces between, which is another thing that all wrestling is best during, that uh, I'm not going to parade myself in front of you people. I'm not a performing, Mm. like, I'm not a performer for you. I'm a killing machine, and I'm going to deprive you of the pleasure. I'm going to give you enough to make you pop. I'm going to make you um, pop enough that you want more, and then I'm going to deprive you of more. To go back onto the three-minute pop song analogy, they are doing the verse the verse, and just as the chorus is about to hit, ah, you dickhead. Yeah. Like, have you ever had it when you're walking around the street on your commute and you've got your headphones in and for whatever reason, your, your headphone jack comes, like, dislodged yeah. just as you get into the great bit about the song. Actually, I've got another story about this and I'm going to tell you imminently. Cool. Like, getting deprived of something. Or someone when someone calls when you're in the, yeah. you're in the middle of
1: listening to a song.
2: And you get deprived of something and it's like, oh, man. That's what this match sort of yeah. will accomplish, and it just makes you want Wardlow to do it at his expense. This is great storytelling yeah, yeah, packed agree. into a minute long squat. This is what they should have raved about the tapings. On this, su- th- this is probably why it popped into my head. So on the subject of getting deprived of something, right? <laughs> my wife. <laughs> we're on the, we're on the uh, drive home. We a uh, lovely little uh, place, Wyland Brewery. You ever been to Wyland Brewery? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I
1: went to, went to watch. One of the England games there. Hopefully. All
2: right. So Wyland Brewery, it's this beautiful old uh, building it's in lush, Newcastle, yeah. just lush. They've repurposed it into a brewery. They have a fabulous Sunday roast. So we we'll take the kids there. And it's right in a park, Exhibition Park. So got there 45 minutes early. Very idyllic day. Me and James are having a kick around. Lovely weather as well. Lovely weather. Great cool. day for it. Really? Having a kick around with James. Uh Jumpers for goalposts. I'm lobbing them. <laughs> Bollying past him. That's great. He loves Zee. it. See? He loves it. Right? And, uh, the youngest doesn't really like football that much. He's on the slides. It's like a play park. Then you go and have this lovely roast. Two pints. Just on a Sunday. Not that's going to get you hungover, but no, no, no. nice little buzz on. And I think, this is an idyllic family day. But all family days come to a close. Time for bath and bed. Let's go on the drive home, shall we? Now, I support, against my better judgment, mind you, Newcastle United. I know it's fraught with problems at this point, but my ingrained fandom means that for now, until it starts to get really ugly and the reminders get worse and worse, I can't help but more relief that Ashley's not there. I'm still kind of holding on at this rate. So, on my Spotify most played, I've got Mark Knopfler theme from The Local Hero, which is what Newcastle United emerged to (laughs) before they play their home games. And like, Every time we've won, I'll, I'll myself a little local hero this season. And as a result, it has appeared on my on-repeat Spotify playlist. So we thought, you know what? Let's not listen to Disney. Eh? Let's not listen to the Disney playlist. The kids <laughs> have had that enough for the last however many car journeys. We're going to listen to the on-repeat. Good. So there's some stuff that Francis likes, and this mm-hmm. is something that I like because we share the same Spotify mm-hmm. login. So we've got uh, my own summer it, at Deftones. Um, Japanese breakfast, just like have a great time, mm-hmm. and then have you ever heard the full length of Local Hero? I don't think so. So it's got this incredibly like slow, drawn out, like two and a half minute interlude where oh, it's like yeah, lonesome guitar. Because I think the film it was um is the theme for it's like this horrible businessman. Comes into a town and tries to take it over, and then some guy saves a day. So it's got this wistful, bittersweet, like really, really long intro, and then it goes do 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 doo. When he saves a day, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it goes on for two minutes, and I'm thinking, she hasn't clocked that. It's a Newcastle song, and it's a Sunderland fan because she supports Sunderland, Yeah, yeah, yeah right? I forgot she about does, that bit. She does not want to hear this realistically, and I wouldn't put it on by choice. So, like, I'm just thinking, oh God, I'm going to get to the bit, the that, 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 that hairs on the. On the arms, the goosebumps bit, da, 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 with a little dose of cruelty because she's a Sunderland fan <laughs> and she hasn't really worked out that it's local hero. And I swear, like ten seconds before, da, 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 she skips. Oh no! She skips, and oh man, oh, what did you do that for? She was like, "That sounds boring." <laughs> and I was like, "It was about to kick in." It's like what? And I was like, "Local hero," and so I'm glad
1: <laughs> that
2: was this swash match.
1: That's a great analogy. I tell you what I did like as well—the little video package for Tony Neese and his tiny knees uh, afterwards with Mark Sterling. I, I think this is a great association. It's and Sterling saying he's going to take Neece to the top, and for once, I believe them. I believe them in, as a pairing. I think when Tony Neese would just pop up and be like, "Right, that's it. I deserve to be the number one contender or whatever." You're like, "Well, hang on." I realise you'd probably be doing stuff on dark, and I was a big fan of Tony Neece when he was in WWE. But you can't just—you can't just show up. Having had this big arrival, and then they do the thing that they do, and then come back, oh, now, now you're the number one contender for like the TNT Championship or whatever. But now I really like this pairing.
2: Any kind of investment works, and this in fact works. Like when Jungle Boy first got Baltimore, I'm yeah. thinking, right, that's a clue. Get in, get in on the Jungle Boy train, and funnily enough, he's a world tag champion and all the rest of it. Whenever someone gets a manager, a turn, joins a stable, just a lovely little clue that means, all oh, right, okay, it's time to invest. Mm. WWE don't have managers, they so don't license out music, and they don't do staples. So it's like, all right, okay, well, I'm absolutely out of luck here. But no, it's good. If nothing else, it means that you can believe that he's going to win some matches. And by virtue of winning some matches, when he eventually loses, probably two Hook, yeah. it's going to actually mean something. Exactly.
0: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery.
3: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Uh, then we got Eddie Kingston versus Daniel Garcia. Um, a lot of build-up to this, obviously, with the feud between Kingston, Santana and Ortiz, Jericho Appreciation Society. And uh, we've subsequently discovered today if you were sort of a little bit thrown by this presentation of this match this was a 22 minute match cut down to 11 minutes for tv personally i didn't really notice that no i didn't i mean either. i'm sure i'm sure you know they could have gone on for longer and i don't think i was like right, wrap this one up boys but <laughs> the, it was just a match it was so visceral where they just beat the crap out of each other chopped each other hit each other as hard as they can bit each other gossie was bleeding from the mouth at points Kingston wrestled a Kingston match. Uh, so I, I don't think that was taken away by by the editing of this match. Um, yeah, a brawl is the best way to put it. Uh, there's spots with the stairs early on where Kingston tries to send Garcia into them and then goes after him, but then Garcia moves out of the way and Garcia takes control after that and Garcia's targeting Kingston's ribs at every opportunity, driving a knee into them, and he's you know, controlling the arm but only using that as a way to expose the ribs a bit more. Kingston comes back with chops. We go to a picture-in-picture break. Uh, when we come back, uh, Kingston goes for a suplex. Garcia counters that into an abdominal stretch. Uh, again, Kingston tries to counter, but Garcia hits him with a German suplex for a near fall. He stomps on Kingston in the corner, um, but Garcia, as he runs it in, runs into a boot. Kingston hits a knee off the middle rope. Goes for a DDT. But again, Garcia frustrates him. Double leg takedown. Boston Crab. Kingston gets the ropes. Garcia pulls him back into the sharpshooter. Kingston gets the ropes again. And Garcia really takes his time in uh, releasing that hold. Um, As Garcia goes for another sharpshooter, Kingston kicks out of it. Catches Garcia with an Inseguri. Half and half suplex gets a near fall. Garcia dodges the spinning backfist. But this time, Kingston catches him with a backdrop suplex. Spinning backfist. One, two, three, and then post-match, Kingston takes off his belt uh, and threatens to whip Garcia, but announces that's not for him. He's sparing Garcia. He's saving this beating for Chris Jericho, but uh, he grabs Garcia's head, and he's shouting into the microphone right next to it and basically tells him to tell his boss what's just happened here.
2: Strap match incoming.
1: Yep. Just to get that
2: out of the way. That should be loads of fun. And uh, this is... Really, really, really good. I don't quite think it was great. And on that basis, it wasn't quite as good as the last um, Garcia-Kingston Rampage match, which I absolutely thought was capital G great. So it wasn't quite as good as that, but it was excellent. Um, I tweeted um, something to this effect but the mega fans will forgive me. The best thing about Eddie Kingston is that he never looks like he's not in a fight. There's no bit where he feels like he's just doing his turn to sell... Or he's... That's, you know, that's what they do in a wrestling match as well. But it's distinct from a fight. He never feels for a second like he's not in a fight. Whether he's... If you add up everything Eddie Kingston said, and the amount of times he said it, and the amount of times he's repeated certain refrains, you know he's a worker. You know he's a very passionate guy, but you know he's a worker, and he's mm. working these things, and he's a storyteller, and it's so impossible. And it feels almost sacrilegious to say Eddie Kingston's working I've heard him say that exact same promo twice either on the microphone but he said the same thing on a road to dynamite so I know he's working but my god I'm a mega fan of his so I'll forgive him because (laughs) it just everything he does feels real he's on some level he's the greatest wrestler in the world Eddie Kingston Yeah, I think Danielson's a better all-rounder Kenny's my all-time favourite and I'm so lucky that he's operating now and he's going to come back on some fundamental level, in terms of what professional wrestling is meant to be and how it's meant to present itself to the world, on some level, Eddie Kingston's legitimately the greatest wrestler in the world. He's just got something that other people don't, it's just a constant sense of realism. The, the match, the physicality, it was all great. The rhythm of it was excellent. There's this one tiny little moment. I thought a few people pointed this out on Twitter as well, not just myself, where he's getting controlled by Daniel Garcia and he's been weakened and he just lashes out with a back fist or he doesn't, I don't think he even hits him. But there's, he just does these little motions, these little movements, these little moves, where it's like he constantly reminds you that he's in a fight at all times. Not a second goes by watching Eddie Kingston where you think, "Oh, you're you're going to do this spot next," mm. or "You're performing here," or "You're waiting for your turn." It just every single second feels like a fight.
1: A bit like when I remember when Punk. Uh, when he was facing Cena one of the first times, and Cena goes to do the you can't see me and Punk was like, Well, I'm not just gonna lay there and let you do it, I'm gonna kick you in the head. Yeah. He just he, like you say, it's just it's not just oh I better lay here for a minute to let you do your thing. He's just like like you say, scratching and clawing at every scrappy,
2: opportunity. Scrappy, a scrappy, scrappy <laughs> fighter, and I never for a second don't believe what he's doing. I never get he never loses me either.
1: No, exactly. No, he's very he's someone who, if in, in a fighting AEW, if he just went and gouged someone's eye out, you'd be like well, he just—that's what he had to do in that. That was his only way of, of yeah. doing it. So he's justified. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, without question, this sets up presumably a strap match. Which, I mean, I wouldn't want to face. Eddie Kingston in a strap match, but then I won't want to face Eddie Kingston ever because of the reasons you've just laid out there. But my word, what a mouthful prospect that is. Um, we were promised a lot of interviews on this show, and we go backstage with uh, Keith Lee and Swerve getting interviewed by Tony Schiavone, uh, and uh, they're asked about you know what's been going on with them and team Team Taz. And uh, Keith says, "Indeed, indeed, Mister Schiavone." I've heard you are so entertained, Tony. The reality is, Taz, a person that I have looked up to, Taz tarnished this battle when he got involved. And he also, at one point, I'm just going to drop the thing for a second. He goes to say him, I think. But he also, you know, everyone do that thing, I'm guilty of it all the time on this pod, where I'm so... that I mix two words up. So I mix with the word I'm going to say afterwards or a thing that I'm going to say afterwards and it amalgamates into a weird thing. So he's going to say, reality is, Taz, a person that I've looked up to, tarnished this battle when he got involved and now him, his team, I want to annihilate them all and I swear, blah, blah, blah. What he actually says is, tarnished this battle when he got involved and now him, his team, (laughs) I want to annihilate them all and I swear to... Oh, Swerve, Love. and then Swerve takes over here and uh, talks about being perturbed, and another, yeah, another long words that Keith has taught him, uh, and he says, Calvin and Harbs, uh, you won the battle, but the war is far from over. Ricky Starks in this next bit is so goddamn great. So just before we do that, got a chance to interview Swerve, who's one of the nicest guys, uh, so do go and check that out. The video of that is on our YouTube channel, and there's a little bit of a guest appearance in there. Yeah! You need to watch out yeah. in the background, yeah. Uh so he cut back from, from Swerve quite you know quite seriously. Uh, war, war's far from over. Stark goes, War? You broke ass Keenan and Kel! You don't want to smoke with Team Tarzi. He says they got a the check with their names on it and they plan to cash out, and he's just He's hyping himself up, Hobbs is stood with him, Taz is just lovingly watching on as Starks just fires back. But what a line that was. He's absolutely
2: great. He's so, he's just drenched in charisma
1: intensity. Oh god, he's just
2: Ricky Starks is the absolute king. Like that AEW's got too many great guys. I don't know where you exercise the discipline, like in the last twelve months to say no, not you as great as you are. Because he could build a promotion around Ricky Starks. You really could.
1: You could, I think with the guys that you've got, and girls, just a, you know, guys, generic, catch-all term, uh, I reckon you could fill an entire rampage with just promos, and it wouldn't get boring. Yeah, absolutely. Like the variety of people that you've got in there. Uh, but yeah, what, a, what an amazing, I think the kids call it a clap back, uh, regarding what Swerve and Keith Lee had said. And yeah, a lot, a lot of people say, oh, this feud must continue. Yes, it must continue. Yeah, of course it should. Well, of course, like, wouldn't course you? it should, this feud's awesome. You? Uh, we got an interview as well with uh, the three women who've qualified for the Owen Hart Tournament so far, being Tony Storm, Jamie Hater, and Britt Baker. You got Hater and Britt on one side, you got Tony on the other. And there's the implication, and obviously Tony's going to face uh, Hater in the uh, in the first round. And uh, yeah, they're talking about their chances. Basically, and Tony Storm takes the opportunity to fire some shots at both Hater and Britt Baker, and she basically says, "I'm going to win the whole bloody thing." And I'm gonna beat you, um, beat you, Jamie, in the first round. Maybe I'll beat you, Brit, if you make it that far.
2: Does it telegraph things for the sake of getting a quote-unquote extra women segment on
1: the show? I don't know. That's all right. Tell you what, I get the feeling that you will have liked, and that was the little 30-second video package hyping FTR's feud, upcoming feud. I can't but wait them, for the Road 2. With the, oh, the Road 2 is going to be unbelievable. I think this was just a snapshot of it. Uh, Dax I'm not and, doing
2: it. I'm not, I can't talk about it. I've already ruined the preview, man. I can't do it
1: twice. Dax and Cash, what I did like is them just acknowledging, like, you were still mates, but I want, I want to win, and you want to win. And, like, Dax says I'm going to win it for my kids, and Cash is like, oh, I want oh, to win she it. hadn't said that.
2: Yeah. I'll tell you why on Wednesday.
1: There you go. Uh, right, let's talk uh, about what came next. We had the usual uh, back and forth between the two competitors with uh, um, with Jay Cargill barely acknowledging the fact that uh, Marina Shafia is, uh, is you know, the, the problem and what have you. She's on her phone. She's letting Mark Sterling do the bloody talking for it. Usual sort of back and forth. And then, of course... Well, looks like we've had enough talk. It's of <laughs> Time goes so slowly when that plays. TBS Championship on the line and the streak, of course. Jade Cargill's twenty nine and zero and twenty nine and zero streak was uh, up for grabs. Uh, and Jade Cargill, she's taking this very not casually, but she feels like she's uh, you know gonna dominate here. Initially, there's some leg kicks from Marina Shafir, which Cargill's like, all right, enough of that, none of that. Uh fall-away slam, though, allows Jade Cargill to take control, and she clotheslines her out to the floor. When they're out there, they're sort of brawling around ringside. The baddies are there on the front row, and uh, I, I initially thought, well, there's that's a DQ, because <laughs> they didn't say, oh, the referee's been distracted by Mark Sturley, so I thought he was just watching, like, Kira Hogan and Red Velvet kick the crap out of Marina Shafir while Jade Cargill watching? and went... Ugh. Uh, that's, yeah I, got, was, I was
2: befuddled th- by this thankfully
1: though they immediately then cut to Sterling taking the referee it was,
2: ed- it was taped yeah they could have yeah
1: was it Audrey? I think it was Audrey uh, who was doing the referee but anyway been distracted by Mark Sterling missing because normally when it's like oh the, the people who are there accompanying them whether they're sat at ringside or whether they're like you know walking around the ring they get one shot in not these lot they were all just like putting a little shot in into the ribs for uh, Marina Shafir so Cargill's just like, well, there we go. This match is sorted. She's sort of toying with her a bit. Uh, back suplex gets her a near fall. Um, but then after she sort of ground and pounds Marine Shafir for a bit, Cargill just sort of poses over the top of her and that allows Shafir to pick her leg, put her in a guillotine. Cargill powers out of it though. And we go to a break and when we come back, Shafir's going after Cargill's knee, she puts it in a knee bar, um, but Cargill has to scrape and claw and get to the ropes, and uh, as Cargill's uh, sort of talking to, to Sterling and getting advice, Shafir slides out and slams Jay Cargill's leg against the ring post, and uh, Mark Sterling tries to get him on and just gets hoied over uh, Shafir's head for the for the uh, for the, for his troubles, the baddies distract Shafia by throwing popcorn at her. And then this has been gifted and, and shared to oblivion. This pump kick. My God, by Jay Cargill. So Shafia's like, oh, okay, I've taken Jay Cargill's leg out. Baddies throw a bit of popcorn piss off you. Turn around into a freight train of a pump kick, basically. Just smashes her backwards at ringside. Um, Cargill takes her. Uh, and choke slams her onto a timekeeper's table that doesn't break, but just sort of collapses wonderfully. Like, you know what? I never want to wish any injury or anything like that. But, my God, the whiplash that you saw Shafir go through just made it look spectacular, that. Uh, Cargill chucks Shafir back in. That's it. The match is over, basically. She's going to have a a little celebration with her baddies at ringside and go in. And she goes in, and she does the cocky cover. And Shafir... Grabs her ankle and puts her in a heel hook. I thought that was a wonderful twist towards the end. Cargill did realise the only way out of it is just keep kicking Marina Shafir in the face. Uh, she does, and there's just one shot. And I, 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 it was fantastic performance. I thought this bit with Shafir at the end because it's one of those where you're like, right. So why would you just sit there and get kicked in the face? But also, in Shafir's head, she's thinking. Well, another three seconds of this, and Jay Cargill's going to have no choice. This is the, you know, the last throws of it. So get kicked in the face, get kicked in the face, getting kicked in the face. And one kick, perfect timing from both women. One kick, you just see Maureen Shafir just go, right, what's going on? Where am I? And that's the moment Jay Cargill pounces. She gets her up. Uh, she hits her with a jaded slam. And uh, 1, 2, 3, Jay Cargill retains her streak, continues a really enjoyable main event and there's money coming out of the ring posts and green balloons coming down. What did you make of the main event?
2: Remarkably good. Remarkably good. My favorite thing about this match, this is a weird way of putting it, but bear with me. The best thing about this match is that I felt like looking ahead to this podcast, I was going to damn it with fame, praise, like, oh, didn't they do well? Wasn't this way better than the kind of rubbish match you were expecting? The best thing about this match is I was thinking throughout, I don't have to use this tone anymore no. increasingly. Uh, J.D. Cargill had a great, great match. A total, again, an over-delivery against Anna J. This was not quite as good as that, but I thought that was genuinely great. This is good in a way that we've seen nothing on this level from and Shafir in, yet. Yeah,
1: and in terms of a sort of reverse from what we were saying about the opener tonight, uh, or Friday night, I went in, I will admit, with some reservation, sceptical of all hell. The, the really. Shafir match they put on Dynamite, yeah, was, was it? Yeah, was a bit dud. like, everyone's like, oh, it's quite it's scrappy and stuff. And I was like, it just looks a bit botchy, if I'm honest. But yeah, these two really pulled it out of the bag.
2: They really did, given their respective levels of experience. This can be considered nothing less than a triumph. It wasn't a great match, but it was a... Damn good match for what it was. And one of these days, we're going to turn around, and this day is coming soon, where we don't have to caveat this praise. It's just going to become what Jade Cargill is. This is such a mature performance from her. Um, She, this went long, way longer than I was thinking. And yet, the last time Jade Cargill went this long against Ruby Soho, she was badly, badly exposed. And it didn't do Soho any favours. It's the veteran solid hand.
1: Longest match of the night.
2: Yeah, this was genuinely good. and Merited the main event spot. Merited the main event spot. Um, Jade Cargill completely performed like a star. and It was a different kind of performance from her because what happens when you do a monster push like this is that before it just gets boring and redundant and repetitive, you gradually have to have the monster character, whether they're a heel or a baby face, gradually show more vulnerability. No one wants Ron Breaker to happen where they sell for prolonged periods and it's dull. You can Work a cleverer uh, layout around that, but ultimately they do have to show a little bit more vulnerable, vulnerability to tease the drama of a switch, and yet preserve the aura of the person who's such a monster, such a horse. You can't have to get this balancing act; that's very tricky. Correct. I thought they nailed this. Um, I like the add-ons to the body section because it just gives them another another um, avenue to drama. I mm-hmm. didn't rely on a just purely in-ring match because I don't think either woman's quite there yet. Red velvets. <laughs> four. Or, she's got so much fire. I was, I was a little bit eh, when it felt like she turned heel by aligning with <laughs> Jade Cargill. George, who's that? Yeah, I thought that's a strange decision because she's got loads of babyface fire, but she just looks so vicious and oh, rapid God. fire and like don't piss her off. Great. Um... The f- climactic sequence is done with enough suspense. Jade Cargill showed just enough vulnerability and the control vulnerability ratio was tremendous um another six months, and Jade Cargill's going to oh. be something incredibly special and it's again, this so, is what's so good about Aew, but, that, but they're so consistent in the long-term vision. having that security that you know in six months that's just not going to be like just on dark or elevation or completely forgotten about. it's good to invest.
1: And she's rewarding the investment with her progressive improvement. It's just a nice old time. And this match made me want to see more of Marina Shafir, which is a, you know a, a ringing endorsement as well because the the way that that she you know potentially whether she's a heel or a face you know whatever you want to do with her going forward after this, I just love the idea of like she's not she's never beaten like you can. Hit her with big finishes and big finishes. But if you leave a limb flailing or a, like oh, we yeah. saw with Jay Cargill, if you just put a foot wrong, she can just like like a spin and just yeah. spin and, and submit you. I think that's a really nice I'll, string to her bow.
2: I'll reserve judgment because I did hear Hype from Dark and then I watched Dynamite. Then I watched this, so I would describe everyone yeah. as deeply uneven, but... They might have something with her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let us know your thoughts on AEW Rampage on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Uh, well, actually, you can follow both of us. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Um, Sidgwick. Sidgwick. Uh, you can still get his brilliant book all about AEW Becoming all The Rise of AEW is available on Amazon right now. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWW as I said uh, and make sure you subscribe to what Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. As Sidge mentioned, we will be previewing Dynamite on Wednesday. Uh, already available from today right now, uh, the SmackDown Review and we'll be back with Hamlet later on to look ahead to Monday now. But for now, this has been the Rampage Review. My thanks to Michael Sidgwick. Thank you.